Everyone knows the story of the Titanic. On a frigid evening in 1912, the passenger ship hit an iceberg and sank in the North Atlantic, killing over 1,500 people. Only around 700 survived. And six of those survivors were Chinese men. Their stories have never been told, until now. This is the photo I think about the time when he just, on the Titanic. I asked my mother, did she know? She said she never heard about it. She never heard about my father being in, in this boat and sinking or anything. More than 700 people survived Titanic. And those stories are very well documented. But the Chinese are almost uniquely unknown. Where do they go? How is it possible that they just suddenly disappear? For six out of eight of the Chinese to survive, there's no doubt in my mind that this is a group that took the initiative themselves and went their own path. The Six is a new documentary that's hitting theaters in China on April 16. It's directed by Arthur Jones, and its lead researcher is Steven Schwankert. Both are with me in studio here in Beijing. Thank you both for being here, and congratulations on this fascinating and, and timely documentary. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. The film begins with Stephen laying out his reasons for digging deeper into the story of the Chinese survivors of the Titanic. Arthur Jones, when did you realize that The Six was a story you would be interested in and would want to devote five years of your life to? Well, I've got to say, I did not leap into doing this you know, and say, wow, let's do that as soon as I heard the story. Stephen knew about this before I did. I mean, he's the maritime historian and had mentioned on a previous project that there was this story of Chinese people on Titanic. Um, I pushed back a little. I mean, I was, I was surprised that I didn't know it. I was around in 98 when Cameron's film came out here and I know what a big deal Titanic is as a story in China. So it surprised me that there was a completely Chinese story on board Titanic that I hadn't heard. Um, but it took me kind of asking around amongst friends, Chinese friends, and them all saying, what? Are you kidding? You know, are you kidding me? There were Chinese people on Titanic? How is that possible that we don't know about that? To make me think, well, maybe this story has legs. I just thought it might be a, an, a quirky offshoot, just something that accidentally hadn't become well known, or maybe I'd missed it. But as I realized that, you know, no one seemed to know about it outside China. Um, and then, even more surprising, no one knew about it in China. For me, it was that perfect kind of sweet spot for a, the kind of documentary that I like, which is a complete mystery hidden away inside something that's fairly well known. So you pull people in with the idea that they kind of know about this already. And then right in the middle of it, there's this extraordinary mystery that doesn't make any sense that you don't know about it. I mean, um, Stephen will... I'm sure it knows a lot more about this than I do. But, you know, there were, as you say, 700 plus survivors of Titanic, and they're pretty much all well known. You can go online, you can search them out, you can find where they were born, when did they die, what family, who's around, their descendants and all that stuff. But it was just the Chinese men on board uh, who were a complete mystery, just a, just a black hole. Uh, you started pitching the film in 2016. How did the film evolve from the time you first pitched it to what we see on screen now? Well, it did begin as uh, a sim simply a Titanic story. I thought, well, here's another maritime story. We'll go and do this. And we started to take it to some pitch forums. The question for documentaries, especially independent documentaries, is um, is often near the beginning. You know, where are we going to take this? Who's going to pay for it? There's, there's not one way of doing that. You know, I make documentaries for TV as well, commissioned work for BBC and Discovery and so on. And the model is very different. It arrives as a pre-commissioned piece. You go out, you shoot the things you need, you put it together according to a script. The things that we make in this more indie fashion don't, don't work in that way at all. And there's no single model to get them funded. Every film I've done has been funded in a different way. So this started off as a kind of, this will be a TV piece. We'll find somewhere that will run it. Initially, we thought we'll get a Chinese broadcaster maybe and maybe an overseas one. Maybe it'll be a PBS thing and a, one of the Chinese broadcasters. Um, what happened, though, um, is that in the middle of the project, about two years ago, is that sort of unbeknownst to us, we, we had made a trailer, but we, you know, it was low key. We just put it on our social media, mainly actually to find other survivors' families, just to get the message out there. The film was going on and it got picked up. And one of the big Chinese video platforms, Li Shiping, the Pair TV, ran it on their forum. And in 24 hours, I think it had 22 million views. 
<laughs> just a trailer. And that changed everything because um, this is in the uh, the wake of a Chinese film uh, that came out a couple of years ago called Ashar 22, which was about uh, comfort women in China, uh, Chinese comfort women who were, you know, uh, who'd been uh, um, sort of captured by the Japanese army. And that film was a, did very well in the cinema here. And I think a combination of that and the fact that we had such a huge level of interest in those early days meant that suddenly we had the prospect of the film playing in, in theaters, which is something completely new. And it's not something you kind of anticipate as a documentary maker. Steven Schwenkert, the amount of research you and your team do that's shown in the film is beyond obsessive. We see you do the work. You go around the world, you talk to family members of survivors, you chase leads, you even track down an expert on Chinese poetry. And the research leads to some real revelations, which I'm not going to spoil here. How many researchers did you have working on solving these mysteries, first of all? So I think we had our, we had our core team in Shanghai, which was uh, four or five um, of course, I was involved, but I was here in Beijing. And then um, along the way, we picked up other people, you know, genealogists um, in San Francisco, in New York, in the UK, um, in Canada as well. And, you know, as the story, you know, expanded um, out from sort of, you know, our, our, our office and our mind, um, you know, we, we realized that we needed dedicated people to go to different places, you know, we need people on the ground, you know, um, a, a phrase that I that I use with Arthur a lot is always the map is not the territory. And it's one thing to kind of call up a, a, an archivist and say, hey, can you help me with this or that? But it's a lot easier if there's someone there that can go to the archive. And because you pick up things, you know, something very simple, one of our one of our earliest discoveries was um, for you know, a hundred years, one of the names on the passenger list, the Titanic passenger list that, that uh, specified the eight, the eight Chinese men, it had been written down or it had been typed in as Ali, like, or, or almost Ali, like Muhammad Ali, A-L-I Lam. And once you look at the act, when you take a close look at the actual document, it's not always visible if you look at a copy, but if you look at the actual document, it's obvious that it's Alam, which is, you know, not, not so much here in the north, but, but certainly in southern China, very common appellation. You know, it's Big Jimmy, Little Jimmy, you know, whatever. It's just, just one of those nicknames. So that told us a couple of things. First of all, it corrected something that, you know, I mean, you know, Ali Lam, are we, are we looking for, you know, uh, uh, someone who's Muslim? Are we, you know, what are we looking for? But it also showed us that maybe these names are not official names. Maybe these are not names that are coming from official documents. Maybe people are just giving a name. And I mean that, you know, talk about maddening. I mean, we spent so much time just on the names. Where did these names come from? You know, are they nicknames? Are they uh, official names? What dialect is this? Did they come from, you know, did the men walk up to some White Star Line ticket counter and say, my name is Alam, or is this some representative that's giving in a, you know, a, a list of names? So, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's like arguing about the starting line of a race. Are we going to start over here? Are we going to start over here? We just, you know, because ultimately all of this began by pulling at threads because that's all that we had. We really only had little threads to grab onto. So we got our tweezers out and we kind of, you know, just grabbed onto them and then as carefully as possible started to pull them out. And sometimes like a real thread, it just breaks and you go, oh, well, okay. But sometimes it takes you something else and, oh, okay. It's, it's you know, and you, you just, you have to follow where it goes. Um, and and that, that was something that we got really good at over, over the process of researching this. At what point did you realize this is going to be a lot of work. It's not going to be one year. It's not going to be two years. It's going to be a lot more than that. I mean, I don't think we ever thought it wasn't going to be a lot of work, but I don't think we thought in the beginning that it was going to be this much work because it's, you know, Google is a gift and a curse. Okay. And it's a gift because it saves you so much time and so much money and so much travel, which as we've learned over the last year and a half, isn't always available. 
even if you have the other resources. Um, and, and again, it, it's sometimes, for example, you know, Arthur and I are both ex-journalists. So when you say to a journalist, go find out about this person, there's a way that, that a journalist works. Okay, there's a, there are resources that we use. You pick up the phone and you call some people or, you know, whatever. If you say the same thing to a police officer, they're going to pr approach it differently. And if you say the same thing to a genealogist, they're going to approach it differently. Their toolbox is different. And that's something that, that luckily we realized pretty early on was that, you know, when I look for records, for me, it's a library. For me, it's an archive. For a genealogist, it's church records. It's a census. It's, uh, you know, immigration papers. And so, you know, we started to realize, okay, we may not have all these tools ourselves, but those people would have them and they would know where to look. And for them, it's easy and obvious. So I think, you know, we were definitely beyond the point of no return when we realized that we had way more work. If, if you get involved with anything on Titanic and you didn't realize it was going to be big from the start, then your start was wrong. Um, but luckily we were, we were beyond that point and, and, you know, we, we only wanted to go forward with it. It's also worth pointing out that there's something very particular about Chinese history. Uh, in the early days of this project, we, as Stephen says, we, were pro we approached genealogists in various countries. And in the UK and the US, where we knew that a lot of the story was going to take place, we were actually turned down by three or four genealogists there, who when they realized the story was Chinese, they said, oh, uh, that's just, that's too difficult to do that. It, 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 that's not really possible. So we, you know, we were turned down by the professionals because Chinese genealogy, family histories, family trees is so intensely both different from other communities, other ethnicities and nationalities uh, uh, that, it, that it, it, if you want to do it, you know it's going to take a long, long time. And the way to prove things that this person is really the one that you think it is or this, this young guy on Titanic turns into this old guy living in the Midwest or something. Uh, it's going to take a lot of work to prove that because the standard documentation may not be there. If it's there, it may have been twisted. The information may be different. The name could be different. The age could be different. All For all those reasons, it's uh, it's a very different thing than looking at a standard, um, you know, like a, like a TV series like Who Do You Think You Are or something. I mean, something like that. You know, they, they have a standard toolbox and they do a great job. Um, but there's a particular challenge about looking at Chinese history, I think. I would imagine that with a, a project like this one, the temptation would be to want to keep digging, to answer every question. Internally, was there ever a discussion where someone said, okay, this is enough evidence. We can be reasonably sure that we've dug up all the information there is, and now it's time to edit. Uh, it's funny because, you know, we normally break up production to pre-production slash research and development, then a production period, and then post-production. But there isn't one of those... Uh, sections of our process that was just that thing you know while we were doing what is sometimes called pre-production we were also filming from day one we were picking up the camera and filming things um, during production we had started cutting some scenes just proof of principle is this actually going to work on a screen because a very different thing you know you're trying to film an investigation and for me it was always I'm always interested in going behind the scenes. You know, for me, half of the story is about what it means to be a researcher. I mean, of course, the film is about Titanic. In the end, that's a lot of people are attracted to. But for me, what fundamentally attracts me is what can I shoot now? Who's going to be actually saying things in front of the camera? You know, some people have said to me, oh, you're a presenter, Stephen. I mean, Stephen is not really a presenter here. He's, he's a subject of it as much as anyone else is in it. And that process of how do you find history, how obsessive do you need to be to get that material, is uh, equally interesting to me as the history itself. Some of the most exciting moments in the film, for me, uh, were the discoveries that Stephen and his research team make in the boardroom, or, or what looked to me like a boardroom. Um, Arthur, how did you film these moments? How many hours of film did you capture? There was, um, it's interesting, it's an interesting question. I mean, what happened, my basic principle is, we, we set up a space that we could film in. So we allowed the research to happen in the space. Um, I don't like to fake things. I don't want to reconstruct things. I want them to be as fresh and as real. I just think you can see that in people's faces. And actually what I want an audience to do is in a way 
become a researcher. You know, I want them to feel like they're in the team and be invested in that process. So you can't really fake that. You know, we sometimes it, it's 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 attempted, you know, for certain TV shows, you might do that. I don't like to work that way. And so the camera's always to hand. Um, the one bit of trickery, I guess we do is sometimes if there was a if there was something that we felt like it might play out, as in we have a thread here, as Stephen was saying, these little threads that you keep pulling. I you get a little sort of, you know, your spidey senses start tingling. And you go, okay, I think we'll get, let's stop for a minute. Let's get the cameras out and let, let this play out with the cameras rolling. Because there's really special moments uh, that you see like that. I mean, you know, I was, you set up the, the way a film works in the first 10 minutes. And the speed and the pacing is something the audience can feel. And I really want the audience to sort of uh, see that something that seems like it would be very quiet, you know, sitting in a room with a book or something you know, somebody might be reading a book and then they suddenly like cry out, I've got it, you know, I found this thing. And there's like an incredible excitement there, you know, if you set it up in the right way with the right kind of pacing. So for me, it's more about creating a, a situation, a framing in a room or somewhere else where we can keep returning to that space and and seeing the same people turn up and see how they're reacting to the material. And you can see the researchers change and develop. Um, obviously, Stephen, but other other. Uh, members of the team who reflect on what they found there's a there's a great scene i think uh, a scene i really love with cynthia lee in new york towards the end of the film when she reflects on what it means to spend so long with a single person just looking at them through documents and i always find that incredibly powerful it's like a really visceral thing for me he's maybe the last person rescued from titanic oh my god they were there and they they lived it they're out there. We've got to go find them. So, you know, this is Arthur's and my second project together. Um, and, and it's the second time where we've kind of created a documentary and done a book at the same time. You know, I, I, I can't take a, I can, if I took a selfie, I would not even end up in the frame. So that, you know, I have no visual sense in that way whatsoever. But um, so I'm sort of the I do the book side of things and Arthur does the film side of things. You know, we agree on the story and then we kind of go forward from there and then we end up each doing our own take on it, which is which is always, you know, a little different. It's it's uh, our, our our first project was about um, a submarine that I was looking for off the coast of Shandong province. And if you read the book, you know, there are just things you can do in a book. There are geeky maritime history things about you know, the submarine makes this many revolutions and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. So that if you're an ex-Navy guy and you're reading it, you, you feel like the research did his homework. But that's not very interesting to listen to as a member of the audience for a television program or, or a film. So, so the product, you know, the end, the end result is always going to be a little bit different. For me, I mean, this one, I, I will be honest, I think we really underestimated it when we first started off. I think we thought it was going to be like our previous one where it was going to be, you know, Arthur and maybe somebody else with a camera, the occasional boom mic. I was going to do some research. We were going to maybe bring in a couple of other people. And, um, you know, we had to realize fairly quickly that that was just not going to work. And it made the film bigger. It made the research bigger. It, you know, it expanded everything. And there was definitely a period of, you know, where, where things became very difficult, not only doing the work, but between us, because we were just feeling, we, we weren't really ready for it. We both realized we had kind of made a mistake in the way we were approaching it. And it just sort of wasn't going the way we thought. And, you know, gee, is this what we had in mind? And, you know, and, and the funny thing is that when we, when we started this project, it was actually about a different shipwreck. It was actually about uh, a Chinese shipwreck, you know, shipwreck in China. We started out doing it. We got seven months down the path. And then what we were thinking about was, well, this is a major maritime disaster. How are we going to tell an international audience about this? They're not going to know anything about the time period we're talking about. You know, how are we going to not spend 20 minutes on screen talking about generals and, you know, this territory? No sweat. We'll compare it to Titanic. It's easy. Everybody knows Titanic. Well, compared to Titanic, you know, smaller boat, more more dead, fine, great. Yeah. So at that point, I went back into my, you know, as any good maritime historian has, I went back into my Titanic shelf 
I started to read stuff. I looked up some stuff online. And that's where I ran into the story of the Chinese men on Titanic again. I'm sure I had seen it before. Of course, I'm going to run into something like that, you know, late at night. This is Beijing. We have long winters, you know. It's not, not much else to do, you know. Um, certainly not in my life. But, um, and, and, you know, then I thought, wow, like six out of these eight men survived? Third-class male passengers? One of them's picked up from the water? Maybe he's the last survivor. Maybe he's the last person rescued. Four of them are in the same boat as the owner, J. Bruce Ismay. W- wait a second. I, you know, and I know that I had gone past it in previously because there just wasn't that much there. You know, you could read the entry right now and you go, eh, okay, interesting, but you know, not not too much there. And then at night, when I was staring at the ceiling, you know, I don't I don't lie in bed at night and think about the universe or the existence of God or I think about shipwrecks. And and I remember thinking one. I should have been thinking about the other shipwreck that we were working on. I should have been thinking about, but how did it sink? And, and but I didn't. I was thinking, but how did those six guys get off the Titanic? How did how did that group? I mean, small sample size certainly, but all thirty three Bulgarians die. You have whole families. You know, you talk about women and children first. You have whole families of five, six, seven, eight people go down with the ship. And yet these six men survived. So what's so special? And it just it just bugged me. It just bugged, it, it's 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 a character flaw, but at the same time it's an advantage because I, I can't put things like that down. I, I I need to know the answer. And so so I started to say to Arthur, you know, I think maybe we're kind of working on the wrong story here. And we had already been out and interviewed survivors from the other the other shipwreck, and you know we were we were on our way. And he, he, you know, he pushed back, as he said. And, and that was really great because it, first of all, it forced me to prove the concept to him. And then after I proved the concept to him, then we had to kind of prove it back to ourselves that this was worth going on this journey and, you know, and everything that goes with that. Um, but I think it made our story much stronger. I think it convinced us in the process that this was just that this was a really worthy story. That it wasn't just some Titanic gimmick, and and that we could tell a meaningful story not only about bringing China and Titanic together uh, in a meaningful way, but there was a much larger story about the Chinese immigration experience in the first half of the twentieth century that that this allowed us to focus on at the same time. In in the film we do get a picture of what life would have been like for the survivors as immigrants in, in North America and England. And it's a real struggle. I mean, there was this institutional racism built into laws like the Chinese Exclusion Acts in the U.S. and Canada. And in the film, James Cameron, who, who you interview, calls these laws an American atrocity. But also there's these daily acts of hostility and racism that they, they, that they endured. How how familiar were you with the history of Chinese immigration to North America? What did you discover while researching this film? Um, I think, you know, we are people who've lived half of our lives pretty much in China. So I, I think we're not uh, uh, unaware of, of, dis- of the discrimination that people face. You've read Chinese friends of ours who've moved overseas and, and, and old friends of mine who are in England and, and uh, you know, maybe Anglo-Chinese or something. Um, so these are things that we're aware of. I didn't realize when we started this project that it would end up forming this kind of circular shape where, you know, it became more and more clear that these themes were tied up with their survival and what happened to them after the survival. It's it's sort of like it's written into the DNA of the story, which was which was both distressing and and also fascinating, you know, to go to realize that in the very moment they step into a boat. There's something that connects that with, you know, the the, the Stop Asian Hate movement now and, and, and what's, you know, the decades long, centuries long forms of discrimination that have changed over time. They're, 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 they're sometimes institutional. They're sometimes, uh, it's, a, it's based on legislation. It's sometimes to do with immigration. It's a very complex picture. What, what I found deeply interesting as a filmmaker was that it was sort of like layers of an onion. As we looked at the Titanic story and sort of unpeeled it, you could see that that the the layers built into the, the this wider history too. 
So they step off a boat, you know, can they get in a boat? Will they be allowed? Are, are they, are they, are they uh, treated as equal enough humans to have a place in a boat? Having got into a boat in the days that follow, are the stories about them based on the truth? Are they based on a sort of uh, a, a generational racism that says that anyone who's foreign automatically doesn't have the sort of high standards of an Anglo-Saxon type uh, family, a, a, you know, a white middle class American or British family or something? Um, and then as they land in New York and they begin to, you know, the, the way that they were treated as they arrived in New York. I mean, it's funny because actually, you know, to be completely honest, Stephen and I struggled with this concept of what, how exactly do we describe what happened to them in New York? It's complicated and it makes you struggle with language. Were they deported? It's probably not quite the right word because they didn't expect to, to actually become immigrants. They were going to work. And yet... That may be true legalistically, and yet everyone else on board, we don't consider that issue. There were, there were probably people who had a complicated immigration situation, but New York took them in and was kind to them, and they stayed in hotels for free, and they were treated in local hospitals. It's only the Chinese who'd had this unique uh, experience of being treated as completely other as not deserving. There were there was a particular report, I don't remember the newspaper it was in, that said, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially it said, don't worry, readers, we won't let them stay. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure they leave tomorrow. Appalling. Absolutely appalling and un, unreal when you read it. And and as you read around Titanic, you find this, it said there's a, there's a particular famous book, I forget the name of it, about the experience of the women on board Titanic. Mm-hmm. It's a well-known book and, and uh, a well-known pamphlet, really. It's a short, short book about the experience of women on board. And, the, and several times in this, it's kind of, it, it's incredibly shocking when you read it. This is not a book that's, it, it, it's seen as a, a pretty reliable and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a good first-hand report of the experience of women on board Titanic. And it was written by a woman who, who survived Titanic. And she would say, you know, um, uh, women uh, were were looking after the children and the men were gentlemen and allowed us to step on board and gave up their places and so on. And then she will, at the end of the sentence, the paragraph will say, I speak, of course, of the Anglo-Saxon people on board. And it's just extraordinary to read now. And it's you read this and you're, you're, you know, your, your mouth opens and you think, how is this not being mentioned? You know, we talk about Titanic and this has never come up. I don't, I don't know where else anybody's mentioned this. In the second part of our conversation, Arthur Jones and Steven Schwenkert explain how James Cameron, who directed the 1997 film Titanic, stepped in as executive producer of The Six. The Beijing Sessions takes the pulse of English language culture in China. That's the goal anyway. Musicians like Ember Swift and Zhang Sun, writers like Paul French and Edward Rutherford, filmmakers, journalists, they've all come through and I think we've had some incredible conversations and there's so much more coming. So if you haven't already, subscribe to The Beijing Sessions. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now you can finally find us on Google Podcasts. And to help people discover the show, consider sharing those links and episodes on your Facebook or Twitter pages. Okay, back to my conversation with director Arthur Jones and lead researcher Stephen Schwankert. One of the stories that I'd heard about some of the survivors of the Titanic was that um, some men were dressed as women so that they'd be allowed on lifeboats, that they got on by dishonorable means. Until I saw your film, I didn't know that this trope was racialized and and targeted at non-Anglo-Saxon passengers, including the Chinese. You spend a lot of time in the film trying to disprove that, including doing a demonstration with high school students um, at my stepdaughter's high school in Beijing, by the way, where, where they build a replica of one of the lifeboats. Stephen, why was it important to you to change that perception? Well, you know, one of the uh, advantages, let's say, of of studying history is, you know, I thought one of the things that was important about us was to, okay, if we're going to do this, then then we're going all the way. And what I mean by that is, 
we we did not approach this story with a particular agenda. You know, somebody who is um, well established in the Titanic community said to us very early on, you know, don't sugarcoat this story, and um, which really kind of took us aback because we didn't intend to do anything to it. We weren't going to coat it with sugar or lemon juice or, you know, anything um, because we just really, we felt we had an opportunity to take a corner of the Titanic story and re-examine it in a way that, that just had never been done in more than a hundred years. And, you know, we have that luxury looking at history is that we can strip off all that, you know, at the, at the time that something happens, it's very difficult to remove all the emotion, to filter all of that out. You know, the, the, for example, the, the women that Arthur are talking about saying, you know, oh, that, you know, these men act, acted this way or these people acted ignobly or these. OK, I, you can understand that because in some cases, people lost their husbands, their brothers, their sons, you know, less than a week before they're giving this interview yeah, okay, you know, your, your, your husband went down with this, you know, your husband kissed you and your daughter goodbye. He stepped back from the rail. You never saw him again. And then here are these other men who clearly didn't do the same thing. And what are they doing here? Why isn't my husband here? Why couldn't he have been saved? So, so that, that's totally understandable. If that happened today, we would feel the same way. It's, it's fine. But that stain doesn't need to remain for a century or more, and then reflect on an entire race of people or an entire ethnic group in perpetuity. It, 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 there's, there's just no reason for it. So, you know, we, we felt, all right, if we're going to do this, we can't just get like some Ken and Barbie dolls and build a small model and kind of, oh, well, you know, did they hide, didn't they? We really needed to say it again. The map is not the territory. We, so we, therefore, we, we needed to rebuild the territory. And the territory meant a 27-foot lifeboat. And, you know, the, the people at Western Academy of Beijing were so awesome. I mean, I, I'll be honest, okay? I'm not saying this because they did it. But I had worked with WAB before on some scuba stuff and, and a couple of other programs. And when I put the call out like, hey, um, does anybody have a wood shop, a design shop? help us out with a project, film related, you know, nice after school project. I mean, I, I sat there with my fingers crossed. Like, come on, Wab, Wab is the right school for this, please. You know, I, I have, I don't, I don't have any children, so I don't, you know, I, I have no, no skin in that game, but it was just like, these are the right people. And, you know, they got back to us and they're like, yeah, hey, what's your project about? We told them it was approved within a week and it was just Mark Trumpold and his students just, you know, we, Arthur and I have really good luck when it comes to stories. You know, we have really good luck with partners. We have really good luck with the relatives of people that we meet. And, you know, in this case, our luck was super fantastic. And they did such a great job. And there's a, there's a still from the photo of me. And I kind of have my hand on the gunnel of, of the boat, you know, right before we do the demonstration. And I'm kind of standing there like the proud father. And it was just, you know, you think like, you think in the early stages of these things, like, sure, we'll rebu rebuild a lifeboat. Like, I know anything about rebuilding a lifeboat, you know. Can I, can I buy a kit, you know? I mean, how do you do that? And there we are, and there's our lifeboat. There is the first recreation of uh, a White Star collapsible lifeboat in decades. And there it is sitting in Beijing, and you know, we're going to use it to prove or disprove you know, a mystery that's, that's hung around and besmirched people for a century. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to... It, it was, it, we didn't see it as our task to acquit anyone uh, or convict them. But we really just wanted to know what happened. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's not the law of the land that rules. It's the law of physics. Can people fit in a certain space? Can people survive under certain conditions? And that's really what we needed to see by, by rebuilding the boat. We needed to see what could you do with real people? Would you see them? Would you not see them? Could they hide? Would they not be able to hide? And, and that, for, for me personally, that was one of the most satisfying parts because, you know, we just brought the tools to bear to, to show, you know, okay, here's what really happened. 
You know, you can speculate about it. You can say he said, he said, she said, Ismay said in his testimony. But there's the proof, because there are real people occupying real space, just like it did on the night. So um, that was that. That was a that was a pretty good moment. And we we actually said to ourselves uh, early on, you know, what what if we find uh, that they did do, you know, what if one of them did do with these things? I mean, it's a question we we broached early on and our, our, our sort of promise to ourselves was if, if we find out that one of them did something or was, was, and I say this with huge, you know, speech marks around it, but if one of them was dishonorable, um, that we wouldn't shy away from mentioning it. You know, I think that was sort of a commitment to the project. It was like, if we're going to spend this much time doing it. I, I also said that some, I found some deeply fundamentally problematic, uh, areas of the logic I think that is used to condemn, condemn people on Titanic. Um, and one of them is we talk about this, this sort of Titanic phrase, you know, women and children first, or women and children only, depending on which side of the boat you were standing on. Um, and we say it like it's a thing that we all know and we all live by, but I'm sorry, but apart from Titanic, do we ever talk about that? Like as if we're better than them or something, you know, I mean, it hadn't been around forever. It was, clearly a concept at that time but i mean when a boat goes down now or a plane goes down or some awful tragedy happens to you know real people do we ever say oh you know that plane went down and that's terrible but you know they there was a guy at the back who was like shouting at someone as it went down i mean it would be obscene to do that you know i mean they're put in the most awful circumstances and not only is it unfair to judge them on the two hours they spent panicking on a boat but also i'm sorry it was a hundred years ago and we have no idea what was going on or how somebody's behavior or, or movement around the deck might be misinterpreted years later. One of my things was always, I kept going back to this, was with this idea of intentionality. Because the, 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 um, um, the accusations against them, this is sort of in the weeds, but I think it's kind of interesting, which is the accusations against them are couched in verbs that in English imply intentionality. Take, for example, they dressed as women. Well, they dressed as women is a phrase that means they put on the clothes of women in order to look like women so they get on a lifeboat. But it is quite well documented that it was extremely dark on deck. A lot of people couldn't see things. We actually found out in the course of the research what they were actually wearing. So the, and, and also it is, it is possible that we were never able to fully prove or disprove this, that they still had cues, you know, that their hair was still tied back. It's perfectly possible that to somebody they may have looked like women. But they absolutely did not dress as women in the sense trying to look like women. The, the verb to hide, they hid. But just because you didn't see them doesn't mean they were hiding. You know, plenty of people would have squatted down in the boats. Just because you only saw them till the morning does not mean that they were hiding. And we found no evidence for them hiding. None at all. So you, know, you have to be very careful with this language. And I think sloppy use of language is... It devalues these lives that are really complicated and how it played out on deck. I always said, we should treat this like a court case. If there's no evidence, you cannot make the claim. We did get, as Stephen says, we got pushback from the Titanic community uh, in which we're, we're not really a part of the Titanic community. You know, we have this one project, we've dipped into Titanic and, and we've, we've, we've sort of become obsessed for this project, but we're not, you know, we're not uh, people who are going back and back again to Titanic and telling multiple stories. And we got pushback, as Stephen mentioned. You know, we, we got people saying to us, you just have to accept they did something wrong. You know, that's what it looks like. That's probably what it is. But, you know, when you actually look at the records, maybe there were two or three famous cases of accusations made against them and other men, usually foreign men, usually non, non-white, non-Anglo-Saxon men. But hold on, what about the other eight on board who were there at the same time and didn't mention this tussle and didn't mention that guys got undressed as women? Are we going to just completely discount that? And what about the one of the two who made an accusation who it turns out wasn't even on that lifeboat, was on a different lifeboat, and therefore just it's just hearsay? And then we felt it was really important to treat it in that kind of objective way. If it turns out one of them did something wrong, well, we'll tell it. But that itself doesn't mean that six of them did something wrong. Just because they're all Chinese doesn't mean they're all tarred by the same brush if one did. And you know what? It doesn't seem they did. Also, there's an implication that it was not right for people to want to live on the night. You know, they, we, the, 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 the history has ended up blaming individuals based on their conduct. And, you know, the reality is that the, the, 
you know, if, if, if blame goes anywhere, it goes on the White Star Line for not providing enough seats for every single passenger and crew member. So that so to then turn and say, oh, well, those people acted ignobly by wanting to live, you know, and there's also I mean, you can it really gets, you know, it really gets hair splitting. So if you if you were male and you tried to get onto a lifeboat, essentially when it was level with the boat deck, that was no bueno. OK, you shouldn't try to do that. That was dishonorable, you know. Especially if you were not a first-class passenger. If you're a first-class passenger and you just happened to kind of step in right as it was going down, that seemed to be okay. But, um, you know, if you waited for that boat to reach the waterline and then you jumped in afterwards and scrambled into it, that was okay. Then it was so, it was almost like you took your chance and something could have gone wrong between the rail and the water and, you know. But it, it's so it's so hairspray. And again, it's you know these are things that happened a hundred years ago. We are not living in an Edwardian society. We don't view you know men and women and and various ethnic groups. We just don't look at the world that way anymore. So to maintain for people who want to maintain this narrative and say, oh well, they, I mean, come on, it, it's we we you know we just don't we just don't see it like that anymore. There. That this should not be reevaluated is is ridiculous. You know, of course we should look at it again, and 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 we have better tools now. You know, that's the thing is is you know time with with Titanic time is our enemy. The the, the wreck is decomposing, all the survivors are gone. Even many of the children of the survivors are gone. You know, so in 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 terms of firsthand accounts and and you know those kinds of memories. You know, we're drifting away from that, you know, material that we're going to get from the wreck site and from the wreck itself, you know, that that's diminishing. But at the same time, we have better technology uh, to look at things. We have better ways of interpreting data. We have better and easier access to records than we've ever had. And so, you know, that that's the future. The future is not, oh, this rust stain. I mean, this must have been the stern. Give me a break at some point. Leave it alone. But but in terms of the, the cultural history of Titanic, that's something that's that really can only get better as we go forward. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is is the scene in a lab in the UK where, Stephen, you're dunked into a vat of frigid water to simulate how cold the North Atlantic would have been for people in the water. Uh, <laughs> um, be, before you get into the water, you mentioned that there's a thermometer deep inside you. I'm I'm afraid to ask, but I have to. Where was the thermometer? All right. Well, I'll, I'll narrow it down for you. I mean, you know, Arthur has asked me to do many, many, many things in our time working together. But this was a, a new one. Um, let me just put it this way. I didn't swallow it. So, um, you know. OK, say no more. We're good. Yeah. So <laughs> can you describe just how cold the water felt? Uh, had you ever felt that cold before how how long did it take for you to recover i know that's a lot of questions but okay so i mean in in my experience scuba diving you especially here in china you you end up in, in some cold water you're, you're you especially in the you know around beijing you're gonna end up in cold water uh and how well you prepare for it and how well you're able to you know deal with it when it when it when you're in it um you know is very important for your safety and so forth so I mean, it wasn't, um, I think you see in the film that once I sort of got into a particular position, you know, I mean, I shiver at certain points, but it wasn't terrible. It wasn't unbearable. You know, the, the clothing I had on provided a, a certain amount of insulation. And as long as I didn't move a whole lot, the place that I felt coldest was right, right at my neck to so right at the shoulder line, because that's. That's where the air meets the water. That's where, where, where sort of the wicking is taking place. And of course you, but on, you know, feet, hands, whatever, that wasn't so bad. But you have to, you have to remember two things. The passengers on the night were experiencing water that was 10 or 12 degrees Celsius colder than what I was in. And also I had the luxury of not having to move. Whereas they would have been thrashing around, trying to find some flotation, crying out and, and hoping that a, a lifeboat will come back and, and pick them up. 
all combined with the utter terror of having been on this giant ship that just sank, being separated from your your family, or perhaps trying to save other family members while you're trying to. You know, the good thing was was that almost every Titanic passenger had a life belt on. You know, big cork life belt. I mean, today we'd call it a life preserver. They call them life belts, but you know, just sort of like obviously this is a podcast, so you can't see what I'm wearing, but I'm wearing a down vest. You know, it's just like this, only filled with cork. So they they had plenty of flotation, but that kind of exposure, you know, the average person at that time didn't really swim. So exposure to cold water was really a new experience for them uh, and not a positive one. And so, um, you know, you can kind of see at the end of that scene when I start to swim that actually I reach what 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 Mike the what Professor Mike referred to as 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 the failure point where I was starting to not be able to to keep my head quite enough above water to keep going. So you know with with one of our survivors Fang Long, I mean he was in the water, probably knew how to swim. We think because he grew up on an island, um, and for him the conditions were just right. He didn't it seems like he didn't jump into the water which create, you know, there's a, there's a certain shock that comes from that, um, that has a negative physiological, you know, it sparks a negative physiological reaction. So it seems like he just kind of waited and, and just went into the water directly. He was in the water for a certain period of time, but not so long that he, he really lost his motor skills. And then when he fi- finally gets to a piece of wreckage that's big enough to hold him, he gets himself on it. He may have tied himself to it with a belt. And, and that really was the difference between life and death. You know, even being out of water, even being wet out of water, that temperature differential was enough to, you know, preserve life for him long enough to eventually be rescued. I mean, it's, you know, if you say that, that Titanic, that the Titanic disaster is sort of a bunch of mistakes that, you know, eventually line up and, and, and you know, result in tragedy, you know, for him, it was just, he wasn't in the water too long he entered the water kind of the right way if there was a right way and then he managed to find you know flotation that also kept him out of the water and and that really made the difference so one of the things i didn't know about was that um um you know cold water is is very different from cold air and uh whereas in in cold air walking around and stamping your feet and all that stuff you know keeps you warm in water it's a disaster and uh, as Stephen mentioned, he was able to just sort of sit there in the water and the heat loss is less when you do that. But actually thrashing around in the water and swimming uh, just just drains the heat out of you really, really quickly. And we knew from uh, uh, Mike Tipton, the, the uh, human endurance professor that we worked with there, that uh, most, most people would have been gone within 40 minutes to an hour. Um, and uh, it, it, it may be that they were unsavable even before that. Uh, because the temperature drops so much, the body starts to shut down. So Fang Long was particularly, um, you know, particularly uh, fortunate, smart to get onto that piece of wood. And you'd think that happened a lot in Titanic, but it didn't. There were, there were very few people that got onto anything. There were a couple of boats overturned and people got on, on there. But, you know, he was one of four or five people who were rescued from the water. That's it. Out of 2,000 plus people, four or five were saved. He was the only one on a piece of wood. So of the survivors, there was Fang Lung, who was on the piece of wood. There were four who were on that lifeboat and one who was on... A different lifeboat. A different lifeboat, yeah. Right. Yeah. So four of them were in uh, the, the, the more controversial uh, lifeboat, which is Collapsible Sea, one of the last lifeboats that was lowered to the water. Uh, and that's where the majority of the Chinese survivors uh, made it out. Fang Lung was in the water and one of them, I think we believe it's Chong Fu, uh, got out on one of the uh, uh, the lifeboats, a sort of mid midship uh, lifeboat, um, and uh, either ten or thirteen, somewhere in, somewhere in the middle. Because of the order in which they left, we know the time that the lifeboats were lowered. Uh, because of that, it was incredibly helpful to us in another sense, which was that we were able to kind of reconstruct the most likely route in which they came up through the uh, up through Titanic, and that's extraordinary. With the fact when we when we were able to finally see that. You know, graphically, with this full 3D rendering from the guys at Honor and Glory, this incredible game that they've created in, in New York, and we were able to visit them and look at it. 
Um, I mean, you, you've seen the film. You see Stephen's face as he's watching this. It's just unbelievable that we could walk through the actual corridors at walking or running speed, measure times. How did they go? Which door would it have been? How was it marked? How would they have got out? We knew there had to be something different about the way they got off the ship than everyone else. There had to be. And it's something to do with the order they got onto the lifeboats. And using that, we were able to piece it back together. Yeah, that, that was an extraordinary scene with those two young guys with the, uh, the Titanic tie clip walking you through this this video game they made for a completely different reason that has this incredible application for you and and i'm sure many others as well well as tom linsky says in that scene he says you know it, it is as it was and i mean that kind of tool i mean those those guys became the instant everybody's new best friend in the titanic community because to be able to have that and you know i mean you can go on youtube and you can look up the the real time sinking of titanic which is you know not necessarily fascinating watching but it's it it's you know it, just to have done that on of the exterior and and you know show how the how the list changes as you know as it sinks and you know just some of these details i mean you know t- dealing with titanic material is so there definitely is an orthodoxy to it. Um, and for the bits about which something is known, there's almost too much information. You know, if you look at Titanic model maker forums or, um, you know, people who look at most of the passengers, not not our passengers per se, but, you know, the biographies. And I mean, the detail, the, the amount of time that has been spent on this, I mean, it's both admirable and insane at the same time it's just so obsessive but then as soon as you kind of get off the map and you start to go into i think i think when we started this there was a list of like 15 passengers about whom little or known was 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 known um you know just people who for whatever reason you know researchers lost track of them or they didn't leave much of a paper trail or you know perhaps they changed their name or they got remarried or you know whatever it was and 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 our six survivors were among them. You know, our eight our eight passengers total, but our six survivors were among them. And as soon as you get off the map, it's like you know, here be dragons. I mean, it's just really nothing. And um, you know, so so having the opportunities to to wander into that, but using things like the honor and glory virtual reality mock-up of Titanic to see potential paths. And and that gave us so much insight. I mean, when we when we were there, I mean, we, we we weren't in front of them for that long. We were there for maybe an hour, a couple of hours. But just being able to see, like, okay, they come out of their cabin. No, they can't go all the way to the stern using that passageway, because a waterproof, you know, a watertight door would have come down and blocked their path. Oh, okay. Well, that makes it a lot easier. So again, again, the, the map is not the territory. If you look at the blueprints, well, you think, well, these guys could have wandered all the way back to the stern and then gone up. No, they couldn't have. But we wouldn't have known that until we saw, you know, someone almost, you know, virtually take us through it and say, well, the watertight drawers would have dropped here. So the only thing, the only option they have is to go up the staircase. Well, of course it was. Throughout the film, you use footage from James Cameron's movie Titanic. Uh, James Cameron is arguably the most, or one of the most famous directors on the planet, and he came in as an executive producer on The Six. Can you walk me through this? How did you get this project in front of him, first of all? I mean, it still sort of amazes me now that it that it happened, but Stephen and I and, and Law Tong, our producer uh, in Shanghai, we talked about this early on because there was this thing hanging over the whole project was which was that James Cameron had somehow known about the the Chinese passengers a little he'd put a couple of shots of Chinese passengers in the film and then at some point we point we discovered that he'd shot a scene featuring Fang Long on a piece of wood that ended up being deleted but was on a sort of deluxe version of the DVD or something and we 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 saw it so we were always intrigued first of all he is one of the people in on the planet who's been down to Titanic the actual Titanic, where it rests now, the most number of times. He's obsessed with Titanic. He's a details man himself. And we were fascinated by the fact that he'd known about this story. I had an inkling, uh, sort of a feeling that there was something going on with that Fong Long scene that ended up being cut. And it was, I, I kept coming back to the final scene of 
final scene in the water in his film of Jack and Rose. And I kept thinking, it's funny how Rose ends up floating on a piece of wood because no one else did that except Fong Long. So I always wanted to ask him, you know, were you inspired by the scene of Fong Long? Is that why you both had that idea for Rose but ended up cutting the Fong Long scene because it was kind of a repeat of the same idea? And I always wanted to ask him, we had approached, we tried to approach him early on uh, and we didn't, you know, as you imagine, it's quite hard to reach James Cameron. Um, and we'd, we'd made an approach early on, but didn't hear anything back. And it was actually um, our, our initial and our main uh, exec producer, Nick Ware, uh, who is a very experienced producer and, and, and Lotong, our, our producer brought him on board to, to sort of help out. And he found as a contact, uh, I believe for a lawyer, uh, very late in the process. We were actually in, in, in post-production. We were already editing at that point. He found an email. I wrote an email one evening and said, hey, you obviously don't know who we are, but, you know, uh, can we get through to Mr. Cameron? Would it be possible to, you know, speak to him? And the following morning I woke up and uh, and um, uh, James Cameron's uh, business partner, Maria Wilhelm, had written back to us the next morning and said, Jim knows about your project. He's very interested in it. Is there any way you could get down to New Zealand to meet him? And a month or so later, Steve and I flew down to New Zealand and to interview him. And we spent a little time with him. We talked through all the questions we had. He was incredibly gracious. He knew a lot about Titanic. He was fascinated by the project. And at the end of that interview, he said, you know, would you guys be interested in having me come on as exec producer? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say we didn't say no. There's a big challenge with Titanic movies, especially as a documentary maker, which is how on earth do you show the story of Titanic? How are you going to show anything on screen when it's been so sort of richly portrayed several times, but particularly in the case of Cameron's film, you know, what are you going to do? And we looked at the idea of using older movies, black and white movies and kind of combining, none of which are cheap in the world of documentary. They're expensive to buy the rights for them. But in the end, uh, uh, Cameron helped us out and helped us sort of liaise with Fox. And they, again very graciously allowed us to use that material and allowed us to put it in the film. And we have, the, I think we have about two minutes of uh, Titanic footage, which you'll know is very unusual to have Titanic footage in a documentary. It's, it's not normally something you can, you can put in your, your movie. So now you have the rights to this footage of this iconic film that many people have seen. How do you decide how to use it? Well, uh, you will have seen you know, which I hope it doesn't stand out and you think that's clumsy. How did that work? But there are various visual ways we try to tell this story. Underlying it all was the idea that in some sense, this was sort of a detective story. So we wanted to create sort of detective or researcher boards that we could kind of return to with bits of string tying things together and linking things up. Because these are names that, you know, we've lived with for years, but most audience members are going to just hear the name said. And we wanted to just have a feeling no, we wanted a sort of reassuring hand on the shoulder for the audience to say, don't worry, you may not follow everything as it's happening, but, you know, we've got we've got this. You know, we know who's who. This is how they connect, a little visual clue. So we created these kind of story, we, these boards, these detective boards that would help us to tell a story. That was one element. Another element was the use of um, uh, illustrations or animated il- illustrations that we used where there are scenes that have literally never been uh, portrayed before the Chinese guys running up the deck, getting into lifeboats, um, uh, the image of the three men who end up in the water, including Fang Long. So we had to have some of these being lowered into lifeboats and so on. But then the main, of course, uh, behind all of that was just how the hell do you show Titanic? I mean, it's, you know, what are you going to shoot in the corner of a studio with a little bit of some railings and something? I mean, you know, it's just really tough. So when we knew at a certain point, it's a go, we can use some of the material from Titanic. Uh, the movie. Uh, It was just a huge relief. And also, I think for a release in China, it had this special meaning, which is for many Chinese, and we we grew up with this story, but for many Chinese people, and this is where the film comes out first, you know, in the cinema, that's how they first saw Titanic. So I I felt there was a kind of special resonance to those visuals, an audience here that's probably seen Cameron's movie. It's probably the way they know about Titanic. For them to be able to re-experience that in our film felt particularly powerful. What pro pro tip for all the... uh would-be documentary makers out there when you ask the all-time box office king you know we made him what we thought was an offer that he he wouldn't refuse which was we said we'll take any 15 minutes you've got on camera anywhere in the world that was our initial offer we stuck to it because we figured 
come on, everybody's got 15 minutes, you know, even if he's like stuffing a sandwich in his face, like as we ask him questions, you know, we'll take it. Um, just bear in mind that you're probably only going to get 15 minutes and it's definitely going to be anywhere in the world. And, you know, New Zealand was that place, um, you know, and it was, I think when we both arrived in New Zealand, we kind of looked at each other like, well, here we are, you know, but it was, uh, it was, it was absolutely worth it. You know, it, it, it sounds like it was an extravagance, but, you know, James Cameron is one of the leading underwater explorers alive today. You know, if, if you're not a James Cameron fan, you don't love his movies. Okay, that's fine. But as an underwater explorer, there are very few who have gone deeper or done more underwater than James Cameron. And, you know, so that alone, you know, was was a great honor to but but, you know, to have him as part. Of, I think we just felt early on, you know, it wasn't like, hey, can we get James? Cameron? It was just we felt that he had an integral role to play. We felt that he would find our project meaningful. Otherwise, I don't think we would have bothered. Uh, I don't think we, we would have tried to you know, get him involved. And, uh, you know, we felt he had something to contribute, you know, both something to say and also some, you know, suggestions and just, I mean, his raw knowledge of Titanic is almost unrivaled. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't do it because we wanted to, you know, add a big name to, to, to the project. He really had something to say and we wanted him to say it as part of the film. Arthur Jones is the director of The Sixth, and Steven Schwenkert is the lead researcher. The film will be in theaters in China starting April 16. For news and updates about the film, check out their website, thesixdocumentary.com. Thank you both for coming and talking to me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks Thanks for having it's, been, uh, it's been really interesting to talk about it. Well, that was this week's edition of the Beijing Sessions. Join us next week. Writer Jonathan Chatwin joins me from England to talk about his book, Long Peace Street, which has just been published as a paperback. I'll talk to you then.